Extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. For so long, we've said we can't, we can't, or we're slow to change. Well, I think we've proven that wrong. Instead of thinking of it, it has to be this way. Those are just design constraints. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangi Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high-quality education, no matter what their background. Last week, we started a conversation about reading instruction that we will take up again in future weeks. But today, we return to the question of how schools are coping with the ongoing pandemic. In the spring, we talked with Jennifer Robbins, principal of Ladd Acres Elementary School in Hillsborough, Oregon. And I explained that I have known Ms. Robbins for several years since she was an instructional coach at McKinney Elementary School. In the spring, we talked about what she and her staff were learning about remote learning. But I wanted to talk with her today because she's in the process of reopening her school, or I should say her school building. She is deep in what has been a very messy process. I have long said that reopening requires leadership and trust, but there's so much more to it than that. A few weeks ago, we talked with Deb Gustafson, who is the de facto COVID coordinator for her district in Kansas, and she talked about the planning and attention to detail it has taken to keep schools open, school buildings open since September. I wanted to hear from someone who is still in the early days of reopening a building and how she has thought about it. So welcome, Ms. Robbins. Thank you. Good to be here. So can you just give us a picture of your school, how big it is, what grades, where in this process you are? Okay. Um, well, Lot Acres is a K-6 elementary school. Um, currently, we have 400 students. Um, on our rosters, I guess you could say, um, enrolled in our school. We had about 40 students uh, leave to do our online academy or homeschool this year. So, And that's a district-run online yeah. academy, right? There's, yeah, it's a district. So there's still district students. Um, and then some of them just chose to do homeschool or other online charter schools. Um, so, and... That's a pretty significant, you know, reduction in students. And then um, demographics-wise, we're 55% students of color, but within that group of students, there is a lot, many different um, Latino, Asian, Pacific Islander. Um, so we have over 20 different languages spoken at our school. So it's a little different than where I came from, from McKinney, where it was still that same split, but it was predominantly Latino, and we're still all in the same district. Um, so that in about 38% free and reduced, although we don't have current numbers on that because no one's filling out that paperwork this year. Um, all school meals are free this year, thankfully. So 
we sit in kind of a suburban neighborhood and close to a lot of high-tech companies, particularly Intel and Tektronics. And Hillsboro is this, I think I've got this right, the second largest district in Oregon. Is that right? Um, probably about third or fourth. And yeah, but 22,000 students. So I'm considered a mid to large elementary school in that. So a few weeks ago, you told me you were wrestling with what you called the known unknowns uh, and said that all the different guidelines from the different states conflicted and made decisions even more difficult. This was before the CDC had issued its guidelines. But um, I want to take you back to that time before the CDC guidelines and sort of like, like what, what did you have, what were you wrestling with? Like the distance, the ventilation, the, what was it that was so um, naughty? Well, so going back even further, we, um, the guidelines that came from our state based off the CDC guidelines were mandatory up until December 23rd. And then the governor made them advisory. So which allowed um, districts to choose um, whether to follow those guidelines um, or you know, make their own local-based decisions. And because Oregon has some very large um, urban districts and a very large number of small, teeny tiny districts, so um, it changes a lot. Uh, so we chose to continue to follow them um, and because they make sense, right? They're based, you know, in science and based off the CDC guidelines. Um, so then it became a question of how many students would return. And so when I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago, we had yet to get those survey results back. So I didn't, didn't know how many parents were going to want to send their children in person. Um, and we have different models depending on the grade level. Our K-2 kids are coming daily, um, at least four days a week. And then our three through For six. For a full kids. school day? No, modified, um, about a four-hour school day. So, and then our three through six students are coming A days and B days. So they come Monday, Thursday, or Tuesday, Friday. And then Wednesday is a online, mm -hmm. complete online day. Everybody's online. Just do that, yeah. Mm -hmm. So as the results have come in, we have about 60 to 65% of our students that are choosing to do some in-person learning, and then about 35% are staying online completely. So that makes, you know, it helps now to have some, at least know who's coming. <laughs> so on any given day, what percentage of students are in a classroom? Depends on the classroom. Um, so some of our classes um, have, closer to like 60 to 75% of their students and some have fewer than half. Um, and that uh, even within K through two, that varies. So I may have a, like a class of second graders where 14 out of the 20 are coming back. And then I have like a class where I think I have six out of the 15 coming back. Um, and 
we're doing an interactive live stream model. So um, there'll be portions of the day where you have the kids in front of you um, and the kids online, all of, teaching them all at the same time. And then there'll be what we call async, you know, the asynchronous time. And so the kids in front of you are working on tasks while the kids at home are working on their tasks. And it's not, um, the teacher isn't necessarily giving live instruction during that time. You know, if I have nine little ones on the screen and six ones in front of me, like what does that classroom management look like? How do I keep those friends that are online engaged um, during that time? So we're kind of starting with the thought process of this is, you're gonna do what you have been doing. Um, you're just gonna, instead of being in your living room, you're now in your classroom and you have some of those students in front of you. Um, so it, not to drastically change what you're doing, start with what you know, and then build from there and get comfortable because there's gonna be things like teaching the bathroom procedure that only one person goes at a time and you take your little tag and you hang it on the outside so we know only one person is in there. And then, you know, the hand washing and what does recess look like? Because, you know, we still have to social distance when we're out on the playground. And um, so we're gonna teach some new playground games that are, don't, are fun, but don't involve touching anybody. So um, those are, you know, there's a lot of those new pieces. So it's not changed too many things at once. One thing I've seen speculated about, and I'm wondering how you think about it, is that when kids come into the building, the kids who are remote somehow become less present for everyone concerned and they become more marginalized, right? I mean, just by nature of, hey, you know, I'm over here. You can't really see me. Um, are you worried about that? Are your teachers worried about that? Yeah, it is a concern um, for the teachers about what that looks like. And that's why we... I, in explaining what this model would look like to my teachers, we started with the idea of you really are doing similar to what you're doing now. So you're still seeing all of their faces. It, you're not getting up and necessarily walking around the room all of the time. And you're not at your whiteboard teaching from there. Because um, everyone has to have their 35 square foot bubble, right? According to the guidelines. Uh, we, our classrooms a court to fit in that guideline can only put 18 students in a room um, to keep them separated. So thankfully we didn't have a classroom that needed or a class that needed more space than that. Otherwise I would have been converting the gym or the library into a classroom. So that was a huge sigh of relief not to do that um, because currently my gym is housing all of the extra furniture that we had to pull out of the classrooms in order to space the desks and the tables far enough apart. Um, it's stacked as high as my head right now. <laughs> Another question I've kind of heard is, I've, that I've heard raised is, um, is it really worth it to bring the kids into the building when it, A, 
it's not going to be the experience that they had. They're not going to be able to play tag, for example. I mean, and they're not going to be able to work on projects, you know, at the same table and so forth. Plus, it takes this enormous administrative effort of moving the tables. And I mean, that's just a tiny uh, thing, but coming up with new bathroom procedures, coming up with new cafeteria procedures, which we have not talked about yet. Um, all of the effort, plus the teaching effort, which was really, you know, um, you know, for a year now, the teachers have been working on perfecting or improving their remote learning, and now they have to do something else. Um, is it worth it? Yes. And um, that, I mean, that question has been brought up to me by my staff. You know, they feel like we're in a groove, we're really good at what we're doing. Um, why change it? And yet they will say, I have this kiddo and I can tell they're on YouTube or Roblox or, you know, some other multiple tabs. And I said, well, if we get those friends in front of us, then you can walk behind them and say, okay, friend, I need you to be on this tab, you know, or why don't we try writing that on a piece of paper? Because, you know, although the kids have learned an enormous amount of tech schools, skills, still writing in a Cami doc in a PDF on a Chromebook that may or may not be run, you know, running at the same speed as a PC is challenging, like that lag time. Um, and we just, we're coming back at some point and we need to get in and we need to get going and who knows what the fall will look like. So some of these things we will learn to bridge into the fall. And we, um, we have been doing some limited in-person instruction, some very small groups, the small group of first graders. And we just had a group of sixth graders come yesterday and they wouldn't talk. They were quiet. And no matter what the two uh, teacher, well, it was like my counselor and the teacher were working with them and just really hard to initiate conversation with them. They are so used to being, um, she said it was almost like when you were teaching all the letters on the screen. They um, just, I think for that piece alone, learning how to re-engage in conversation is huge. Um, yeah, I teach a fifth grade reading group daily. Um, it was just something I needed to put into my schedule and I needed to feel this like my teachers feel it. And, you know, I'll put them in breakout rooms. I'm like, come on, guys. Let's, you know, it's like crickets, you know. Yeah. I was observing a classroom this morning and the teacher put them, and these are high school kids, put them in breakout rooms. I got to the breakout room and waited for a few moments. And I said, are y'all there? And, and it took, it, even with that, it took them a few moments because I was a stranger. But they eventually came on. But, yeah, the crickets are real. Is that just a... Is that, is that a, well, you can't know, but is that permanent or is that temporary? I think that's temporary, right? It's temporary. Yeah. I believe so. And I hope so, but we've got to, the longer they're gone, the longer it's probably going to take for that to come back around. Um, so yeah, I believe it's completely worth bringing, bringing them back um, with the lift. 
Are you seeing a pattern of who, who chooses to have their kids come back in and who chooses to keep their kids out? There are some patterns in terms of multi-generational households. Um, in fact, you know, I've been asked the question if when grandma or grandpa get their shots, can, can we then send them? And I said, yes, of course. Um, you know, cause I don't have a, a classroom where I'm worried about getting past that 18 mark. Um, so yeah, let's bring them in um, when you're ready and it's safe for you to do so. And uh, now that you've mentioned vaccines, I, I saw that Oregon seems to have a real push to get vaccines to teachers and school staff, which is unlike some states. Um, what percentage of your staff has been or is in the process of being vaccinated? Everyone who wants to be vaccinated is at the point where they're getting their second shot. That's fabulous. I, yeah, I had mine too. I'm about a week and a half from out from having had both shots. So I'm congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> that second one can be a doozy, let me tell you. Um, oh, did it knock you out? It yeah, but it's worth it. So it just shows that it's working. You know, it's 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 revving up your anti your immune system. Mm-hmm. I, I say that I'm not an immunologist of it. <laughs> I've heard immunologists say that. So. Well, we've had a high number of uh, um, sick calls, more so than we've all during CDL, where teachers needed to take a day off because you know they hit them hit them pretty hard. So. so, another thing that we keep hearing is teachers are just finding this so difficult. The whole thing so difficult that they're talking about leaving. Have you? Had have you heard rumblings about that or? Uh, I did. I mean, I've known a staff member who didn't come back this year. You know, they were or actually a couple. Um, they were at the point where they were maybe a year away from retiring, and they, if it had been a traditional brick and mortar year, they would have been, oh yeah, I'll do one more. Um, but they were like, nope, no thanks. Um, it required learning so much. <clears throat> to to and, teach remotely, right? And learn so much so quickly. So it's it's the learning which is already the dynamic in the brain and not having any background knowledge upon which to draw, but then it's the time to task and, and, and the the speed with which you have to do it. And and managing the change in that, I think, can spur teachers to make different decisions about how they want to approach, approach or not, (laughs) approach or not approach, (laughs) you know, the profession anymore. So Tangie, I'm really keeping myself from asking your question. It's not my question. It's a question. I always question. I always question, you know, but I I think it's important. Like, and I think about this question in relation to what we did here two weeks ago um, when she said, you know, we had to think about our love and grace for our students in a different way. And we had to help them get back towards, you know, some of the standards that we had. And so one of the questions I think that's important is what do you recognize and what do you see about kids learning? Not so much whether you're assessing them or not, but really about their learning. What are you seeing about their learning? 
I think what we're seeing is like the scaffolds that we put in place, um, how did those transfer into um, online learning in both a positive and a negative way? Um, I, there's a lot of over scaffolding that goes on in our educational system and um, you can still see it online um, because there's just this fear that they're not going to get anything um, and so, like, could, you, could you talk about that a little bit more? What you mean by over scaffolding? Because I, I think that's an important point, and I don't know that everybody's going to understand what you meant. Well, I'll be full transparent in some of the things I've been guilty of as a teacher. You come along, you know, stuck on a math problem, you come along, you sit next to him, and you pick up that friend's pencil, and you start, okay, tell me what to do here. And you, I mean, you just, you, you do it. You do it, right? And you think mm -hmm. you're modeling or you're helping and you've just told that student, you're not even capable of holding the pencil while I talk you through this problem. Um, and that, that you know, happens. You, you give instruction and you know there's that group that, well, I, they're not going to do it unless I hold them next to me to do it. Almost literally hold their hand, right? Right, right. And literally do it. <laughs> Almost do it. And then there's one that you always do it actually for. Yeah. And so in that, because we, we're talking about the social development of children and, and really how this is going to have those long-term effects. And so in that space of scaffolding or over scaffolding, are you, what are you seeing? <clears throat> what are you seeing from your kids about are they waiting for the scaffold? Are they attempting to, to do the work? Do you feel like they're learning? I think you see a range. There are um, some that just will ghost, you know, and just not. There's the ones that like have figured out where that turn in button is on Google Classroom. And it's like, okay, if I get it turned in, then, you know, whether it's blank or whether there's stuff on it that doesn't even fit the assignment, but man, I got I got that paper in and so no one, you know, at least for one cycle of time, no one's going to bug me about it because, you know, we've done some training with parents so that they can look and see like, here's, here's how you check to see if your child's assignments have been turned in. And so they'll see it's turned in, but they're not, you know, they can't pull it up to see whether it's blank or not until it got gets it. turned back. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the deal was made. Hey, you get all your work in and you can play your video games. So mm -hmm. they're on it. They're getting that done. Right. And then um, and then there's just the partial products. I mean, even with the little group I work with, it's like some stuff comes in partially done or I love when they come to the screen and they're like, I forgot. I'm like, what did you need to remember to do it? Do you, need, you know, what do you need from me to help you remember that? this was something you were asked to do. Um, so I think it's like, man, you know, that they've done a lot of learning how to manage their assignments. And that was a skill in itself because we manage a lot of that for them. When yeah, we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine you'll have to do a lot of, you'll have to do as much work on that side as you will with the academic acceleration on the other side. And then there's the ones that have just arrived um, because they've gotten away from some of the social pressures and anxieties of 
um, worrying about what other people think about them um, and things like that because they can communicate directly with a teacher and no one can hear them. Did the CDC guidelines, did they help? They are, our state guidelines did not change when the CDC posted its new set of guidelines. We are still operating on the same set of guidelines we were given when we started in September. One of the things that it's, I mean, the CDC guidelines, one of the things that kind of irked me was that it didn't, they didn't seem to really address ventilation in a serious way. And I mention this very particularly because if if listeners are careful, uh, listeners may hear the back in the background of your sound <laughs> your what you called ancient HVAC system. That that seems to me to be sort of problematic. That you have an ancient. How how old is your building? Well, okay. Um, by East Coast standards, it would not be ancient. By okay. what? Under 50 years, it is a little antiquated. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Fair nice enough. distinction. Yeah, nice distinction. Um, and you're replacing the HVAC system this summer. That means it's been in the works for several years. I'm just guessing that. Mm-hmm. HVAC systems don't get replaced in, in school districts like willy-nilly. No, so, there was a bond passed yeah. a few years back. So, exactly. Yeah. So it, it took a bond. It took a lot of planning and a lot of uh, a lot of work on a lot of people's part to get that in place. And so in the fall, you're going to have a. I'm just going to say super. Let's just say super de duper ventilation system. Let's hope. Uh, yeah, Tangie's. Uh, f- for the record, Tangie's face is skeptical. Um, <laughs> um, but. In the meantime, it's not super de duper. I mean, and the ventilation guidelines by the CDC are, well, if you can open a window and it's safe, do so. We don't really know. We're, this is an airborne disease. Ventilation's important. So how are you addressing that ventilation question? That's um, one of those known unknowns right now. It's a detail that's still being worked through the system. So I, I yet have an answer that we are, I am grateful that all of our classrooms do have windows that work. That Um, is a great thing. (laughs) So that's not, we've all been in schools where that's not the case. Right. So we'll be able to at least do that much. Um, Come springtime in our building, we, we frequently have fans and things going because of the lack of AC, but I'm sure we will get some guidance on what would be best in terms of doing that. Like maybe the fans are blowing out instead of in kind of thing. So what other like nitty gritty kinds of things have you had to address? Like how are you handling eating? Uh, That is another detail that's still being worked out is what student meals will look like, whether students will be eating on campus or whether it'll be a grab and go situation. So um, we're still, like I said, I only have a Gemma Capitorium, which is currently being used as a storage facility. So um, we're still still working through those details about what that will look like. Um, In our last meeting, we did 
given the length of our day, um, it's just about four hours. I think staff will wait and eat until after the students leave so that we're not, um, you know, putting a 30-minute duty-free lunch for staff when we could be using some of that as instructional time. Um, so building a schedule is another, you know, the one that maximizes instructional time but has all the safety, you know, all the hand-washing procedures, you know, we wash our hands before we go to recess, we wash them after, um, those types of things. And uh, arrival and dismissal um, have about four buses that come. And so how do we stagger those so um, we don't have a mass entrance, um, have a lot of car pickup. And, you know, how do we stagger that and keep kids spaced out as we're waiting for the cars to arrive and get the kids in cars and or out of cars in the morning. We just kind of went through that. I have a blueprint team meeting, our team, and we meet once a week and we take a piece of this each week and kind of work out those details together and then present those to staff. So that's, and now that I have enough numbers, I mean, I know exactly how many K2 kids are getting on and off the bus. So that helps me have a better picture of what that will look like um, and how many dots need to be painted on our sidewalks. I have a very unique building in terms of it has all exterior hallways. Um, <laughs> it was built by a California art architect. I was going to say very California. Okay. Very, right. very California. But actually that's helpful, no? Yes. I mean, yeah. in terms of, you know, like, we have lots of outdoor spaces um, and I have covered areas where we can um, give, like put dots down and kids have a space to stand on before we enter the building and we're out outside and things like that. So, because it's okay. a Southern California design, but it's a Northern California uh, climate, you get a lot of rain. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> it's, so it, I mean, it offers, it's, pros and cons, like, as far as those things are concerned. So um, we're currently putting lots of dots down and arrows. And, you know, I think that when you get off the bus, you follow the blue dots to your designated spot. And when you get out of the cars, you follow your yellow dots. Um, so, you know, but we won't really know what it looks like until, until we go. But we're bringing kinder through second back March 29th and then third through fourth, and then fifth through sixth. So that's, that helps some too. To stagger it. Staggering to stagger well. it. Um, yeah, but you know, we have kindergartners that this, this is their first time on campus. So that's another big thing we're kind of processing as far as, I mean, the parents won't be allowed to walk them to their door. They are gonna have to either put them on the bus or pull up to the curb and, you know, let them out and usually have tears and kids that cling and, you know, all of those things. And that's, that's going to be, different, you know, a challenge when we can't do that same kind of transition that we usually do. So we're making some plans to help some kids be ready for that. I imagine it'll be even for some students, it'll be more so this go around because they've been home with their caregivers, you know, be they parents or other um, for such an extended amount of time. And, and it feels almost like, you know, days of old parents just put you on your bus and they just sent you to school and 
you know, that's just kind of how it went. So it's almost like what's old is new again, you know, <laughs> um, just you got to get out there and you just got to do it. But I, I would imagine there are going to be some more angst, the separation heightened, um, kids are feeling anxiety and kids are feeling really nervous because, you know, they don't know what's going on and they're processing of the whole pandemic and the way our country's moving in response to it, I think is something that kids are dealing a lot with, particularly the, and even the younger kids. Right. Well, and also parents, right? Oh yeah. They're you know, nervous. They're going to yeah. be putting their five-year-old on a bus and can't walk them to the class or whatever. Um, how are you communicating with families? Like this, these are all very complex communication um, challenges to communicate all this information in a way that's not confusing, which is hard. Um, I I won't say, but I'm, I mean, I've seen a fair number of district websites that I just kind of go, I, I, I don't know what they're trying to do here. <laughs> Um, yeah. How are you, how are you handling that? Uh, well, one of the things we've learned as a district through all of this is parents pay attention to the communication that comes from the teacher um, most tightly. And second layer would be what comes from like me. And then, you know, from, so even when we sent the survey out to say, you know, what, what do you choose? Um, we were tasked with sending those out directly from the teachers um, and then following up, I'm still, you know, calling a few parents um, and asking because they haven't replied. They're still trying to make a decision. Um, once my dots are painted, then um, <laughs> I'm going to be making videos um, with pictures to send um, to families to say, this is what you can expect when you arrive. This is what the bus will look like if you're riding the bus. Um, you sit, you know, because they've they've put things on the bus to designate where kids can sit and where where they're not. You know, like when you go to places where the chairs are separated and you know that you can the seat reserved that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So all of those things, what the classroom will look like, did some of that even when we started the limited in person instruction. Um, I sent little slideshows to the families to say you can expect to meet, you know. Cindy at the door and she's going to take your temperature and you're going to follow the arrows. You're going to walk to your spot. You know, your teacher's going to look different because they have a mask on. Um, I think prior to us returning, you know, some of the teachers may put a mask on while they're in the Zoom call so that their students can understand, you know, for our little ones. Um, our big ones are, you know, but there's just like even the kids haven't been on campus to even know where their classroom is. So there'll be some of those things in that transition time that will, you know, be like, okay, you're going to follow this pathway and, and your classroom's here. There are so many details to work out, right? I yes. mean, if, if you counted them up, it would be thousands. There are multiple of, decisions to make and and but you also have to go into it knowing that you're still going to not know them all and there'll still be something that will catch you that first day and you're like I didn't think of that now what do we do um 
I think what I, as we go through our blueprint team and our reiterations, I go, this is like a first pancake, guys. You know, like that first schedule is going to be ugly and then we'll figure out from there. And, and um, our theme all year long is uh, we're brave, not perfect. So I love that. Brave, not perfect. It from, yeah, there's a book out there right. titled that. Um, mm-hmm. That's important. Yeah. And we I, stick to that. <laughs> who, who have you learned from? Have 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 there been people you've been able to draw on and and talk to and and pepper with questions or? Uh, as an administrative team, we meet at least once a week as the whole K twelve system, and then we have elementary operation meetings once a week as well. Um, so a lot of communication and time there and as a just in my feeder group um so to explain that I, all of our elementary school, schools in one feeder feed into one middle and one high so we have clean feeder system we get together and compare our to-do lists and say you know like okay what are you working on and and so the, things like figuring out to turn all of our bathrooms into gender neutral bathrooms um so that we limit the number of students that are using any particular bathroom, you know, learn that from a colleague, um, color coding the recess equipment so it stays within a cohort, um, things like that. Wow. Well, um, I've, I've, I've been saying right along that this, it can be done to open schools safely, but it requires leadership and trust. And the trust is built by leaders paying a lot of attention to a lot of things. Um, the safety of the school staff, the safety of the students, the communication with the parents. I think you've you've kind of illustrated that. Um, uh, Tangi, do you have any thoughts or? And that's all before they get to learn something. Yes. <laughs> Like that's all before you even like open up a book and go, okay, now we're going to learn. And I think that's, I think the, the nuance and the complexity of the decision-making escapes many people in our country because everyone in our country has been to school. So, right. They've been on the user side of it. So they think they understand it but they don't understand it from the production side, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, to really get people to deeply understand what you're talking about requires a willingness to go beyond what you thought you knew about school and how school operates. And it, I, I will just say, it just annoys me when I hear people say, we just have to open schools. We can do it. It's safe. Mm-hmm. Well, it can be safe. If. <laughs> but in order to make it safe, I mean, you've just laid out, and what you've talked about is just a fraction, right? Because we can't even get to everything. Um, I mean, did you put up, did you have to get seats, uh, um, you know, toilet lids installed, for example? Mm -hmm. Oh, you didn't do that. All right, well. And then your hand washing. Are you going to have hand washing stations Will they be attached to the wall or freestanding? Will they be in classrooms? How many hands, like do your classrooms have sinks in them 
so that the little kids don't have to keep walking around the building. Will you have hot water? And if you, if so, how will you temper it so that kids don't get their hands burned? Like, and again, they haven't learned anything yet. Right. <laughs> they haven't we learned anything haven't yet. haven't even gotten to. <laughs> I haven't uh, gotten that part you know, yet. <laughs> phonemic awareness, phonics. That's right. Yeah. Comprehension. <laughs> Comprehension. The globe. Vocabulary. <laughs> anything. <laughs> but there's, I mean, there's so many layers of things that you can learn from that, you know, process as far as problem solving skills. There's, you know, other practices and soft skills that um, get maybe pushed to the side in this you know, fervor for, you know, what we call instruction. There's a whole layer of, you know, problem solving that students can do in this that we need to trust them to do um, and work with their parents to do. You know, of course, my, you know, worry du jour was like, okay, they have to bring their Chromebooks back, but we've shut off the drinking fountain, so they need to bring a water bottle. I really don't want those two things in the same bag. <laughs> So, you know, those are other things that you go, oh, wakes you up and you're like, what are we going to do about that? Um, but at the same you know, time, I think having the opportunity to model like that problem solving process, maybe it goes back to being a STEM teacher. It's like, okay, we're, we're in, in the engineering design process. That's what it is. I love that framing. And I think part of, part of it is the framing. How do we help this very challenging instance and time in which we find ourselves a little bit more palatable? How can we adopt a learning lens from it? We know it's hard. We know folks are having a very difficult time, but I really appreciate you talking about the design phase and, you know, we're taking the, we're adopting the framework of a learning scientist or a whatever, so that we can begin to ask ourselves the right kinds of questions. So if ever this happens or its cousin comes up, <laughs> like which it will, it, which it will, which right? It will. If, if its cousin shows up, at least we will have something that says, oh, we know something about this because we learned these very important things the last time we went through it. So I think that's really important. I wish more people we're willing to really actively adopt that. And I think it would really help students because I think it would help students um, get connected more intellectually and it'll help build their problem solving in an authentic way. If we, if we as the adults can begin to reframe our speech and our thought patterns behind it, we can bring them alongside and join us in this difficult learning. But the, it seems to me, uh, correct me, because I've never run a school, Ms. Robbins, so correct me if this is wrong. Um, that requires not just sort of here are the rules, but bringing students and families into the process of here are here is the problem we're trying to solve. And this is the rule we've come up with. If you can come up with a better rule, have at it. Um, and that's an openness on the part of leaders that I think it's a little scary for some people. I would, yeah, it, it's definitely, because I would like to take the same framework and think about if we were able to design and think and redesign school to look so t totally different in such a short period of time, that tells me that we could make change 
the kinds of changes we want um, with, you know, in a no longer panic phase, right? And, you know, for so long we've said we can't, we can't, or we're slow to change. Well, I think we've proven that wrong. So now what? Like, and, you know, bringing, instead of thinking of it, it has to be this way, those are just design constraints. And so, and which of those can, are, be moved or rethought or aren't as constraining as possible. But I think it goes back to that idea of like, you can't be perfect in your first, you know, and there's no definitive, I mean, there's obviously some safety guidelines that have to be definitive, but those are the constraints that are firm. And I think being that, having that open process and I've I think that's one of the things I've learned is moving into another school in another community is like really taking the time to understand what do parents, how do they see school? Because some of them went to school here. Some of them went in other countries. Uh, and then obviously some of, you know, they all went to school at least a good 20 years ago. Um, so like you're, like you said, everyone has their expertise level of what school should be like but it doesn't obviously match. And that gets into a whole other layer of, <laughs> of things that we could talk about forever, but next time, right. Next podcast. <laughs> later. <laughs> um, but I, I think it goes into that. Like, how can we reimagine school together? We, we've talked about it forever and ever, but now we've had a chance to do it. So where do we want to go now? reimagine together love it yeah i th i think th and that's a great way to kind of wrap this up thank you so much um i know you're you're incredibly busy figuring out where the dots on the sidewalk <laughs> go and <laughs> billions of other decisions um so uh but thank you so much for taking the time ms robbins and um My we're going to have to check back in with you i think as you as your thought processes evolve, because I, I think Tanji and I both found you, the way you framed this up as being sort of a little bit liberating, right? I mean, it's a design problem. Let's fix it. That's what we do, right? So right. thank you so much, <laughs> and good luck. And we'll be checking back in. I think at some point. Oh, um, that'd be wonderful. And all of you, take care and. I look forward to seeing you again. So that wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times, a podcast of the Education Trust. If you're interested in learning more about the story of McKinney Elementary, where Ms. Robbins used to work, um, I hope you'll read Schools That Succeed, published by Harvard Education Press in 2017. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast and the Wallace Foundation, which provides financial support. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast and composed its theme music. This is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangerine Marshall. See you next time.